So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Yeah, I was just telling Jeffrey, I love that the timeout signal you were giving me as I'm doing my introduction and you're like going like this. And I'm like, I'm like, did I did I just curse on the podcast? Did I just say something and I did came out of my mouth and I didn't realize it came out of my mouth? Oh, it's not, it's me today. All right, well, hello everyone. This is the Integrated Care Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Neftali Serrano. I'm the Executive Director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. The, uh, we have, uh, a great show for you today, in part because we do our best work when uh, under pressure and adverse circumstances. Uh, we've had literally uh, 10 different things go wrong as we try to record this podcast today, uh, but we're excited to be here, excited to be together, and excited to finish 2018 uh, with you all. This is a special podcast because it's actually our 12th podcast. We have a full year of podcasts here um, as a team, and it's been a really fun year, wouldn't you say, guys? It's been Indeed. a really sure. great experience. So um, you hear the other voices. So guys, why don't you reintroduce yourselves to our audience? Let them know who you are. Grace, why don't you go ahead? Okay, this is Grace Wilson. I'm behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. What else? I've already talked about my kids. I've already talked about. I don't know. I guess fun fact, I'm originally from Texas. Do we know that already? No. Yeah. People from Texas usually can't stop talking about being yeah. from Texas is the reputation that we have. So I assume I probably have mentioned that at some point, but it's also fitting for me to bring it up again, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, I think you've evidenced pretty good restraint. Unless say a list, podcast listener is going to go back and audit our podcast and figure it out. I have not heard that. To well, I was point. just thinking with 12 episodes now that someone could theoretically listen to us from sunup to sundown, a full day's worth of... Uh, CFHA podcast. It's kind of a neat idea. Neat thought. I don't know that I could commit to it, but it's a neat thought. <laughs> Binge listen. I like it. Yes. Yeah. So the other voice you hear, of course, is Jeffrey Ring. Jeffrey, say hello. Good uh, Good greetings to one and all. Um, I'm a health psychologist and principal at Health Management Associates Leadership Coach um, and doing a lot of work with uh, um, um, helping facilitate transformation of our healthcare system with behavioral health integration to primary care and vice versa. So happy to be part of these monthly conversations. Yeah, in fact, Jeffrey, you're 
literally right outside or near where you're one of the places that you work with, with in California, correct? That is correct. I'm on my way to a, a um, county uh, behavioral health clinic where we're really trying to weave medical and healthcare services available to those tender, vulnerable patients and to do it in a team-based way and, and to focus especially on uh, complex patients. And it turns out that that is a very tough nut to crack. It seems <laughs> in our experience in the Inland Empire, we've had much greater success bringing um, behavioral health services right into primary care. But the right, that kind of reverse integration is a mm -hmm. tough nut to crack. It's a great challenge. It's an important challenge. Those patients need those services. But for a million structural and historical and institutional reasons, it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to do a whole podcast on that. In fact, that reminds me that we've got a call coming up at CFHA around bidirectional integration coming up. Uh, I don't have the dates offhand, but you can certainly check our website. There's a calendar on there. It'll have the, the dates of the call uh, there. So it's just to help organize the folks who are doing exactly what you're talking about, Jeffrey, because uh, that tough nut to crack, um, it's tough for everyone. So look out for that bidirectional call. So you don't hear uh, two other voices that you've grown accustomed to hearing. Um, one is out sick. This is that time of year when many of us fall prey to uh, colds and other such things. So Amber Gordon um, uh, is uh, out sick today, so couldn't join us. Her voice was just not strong enough to, to be with us today. So she um, sends her greetings from Pennsylvania. And then uh, Deepu George, who is from Texas or currently hails from Texas. Lives in Texas. He lives, lives in Texas. from there originally. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. I don't know uh, if he would claim himself as a Texan. We'll have to ask him. Yeah, that's a good, that'd be a good question. Yeah, what, mm -hmm. what, yeah. So he's not able to be with us right at this moment. He may be actually joining us during the podcast. So we'll, we'll see if he's able to squeeze his way in. He has a very legitimate excuse uh, today. He's got a patient care issue that, um, an emergency patient care issue that just arose. Uh, one that many listeners can relate to, a uh, patient in crisis. Um, and it was interesting the way you described it to me because it kind of flashbacks of many other instances that I've had where the patient was in crisis but also was a non-English speaker. So they were having to manage the crisis with an interpreter. Uh, getting the interpreter um, on site was a challenge. And then, of course, maneuvering after they kind of did their evaluation, maneuvering the patient from primary care to um, a behavioral health center where where they could transfer the patient to the emergency department um, mm. more easily uh, was what he was working on. So it's so tough because the nuance of language when you're doing that safety assessment is so important. So my my thoughts with him and with that patient to navigate yeah. that within a system where people don't understand what you're saying. Right. Mm. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a tough spot to be in, but it's, you know, uh, it's a just point of gratefulness that someone like Deepu is there, right? And, and his team. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that makes Deepu a Texan. I mean, the fact that he's living there and embedded there and doing the work mm -hmm. there and taking care of people there. And I know he has a huge heart for compassionate, integrated care. Um, my vote is uh, Deepu, Texan, George. <laughs> 
We'll rename him Tex. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, and he's—I mean, he's—he's he's deep Texas because that's that's uh, UTRGV is right near the border, um, yeah. and a lot of their campuses I, are. So. I think it would take twelve to fifteen hours to drive from where I grew up to where Depu practices, and still all within the state of Texas. So that's it's, amazing. It's a big place. That's amazing. It's also the site of a really large holding for immigrant children, if I'm not mistaken. I think that that's a, um, a big social reality in their community as well these days. Yes, uh, which actually also reminds me, uh, trust me, I'm not plugging a bunch of CFHA stuff here, but um, uh, we just had, uh, I'm, I'm more proud about this than anything else, but we had a, uh, one of, a CFHA do a webinar in collaboration with the National Register just last week, I believe. Um, on uh, working with undocumented immigrants, um, uh, particularly in primary care settings. And so Martha Saucedo, a, a social worker uh, out of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, gave the talk. Um, so if you want to check that out, um, it's the, the recording is on a member-only page. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes, and you can check it out on the website as well. Um, uh, really good talk, practical ideas about how to support this vulnerable group um, that includes folks who are at the border, but also, you know, the trauma and the impact of, of the work of ICE and um, other the immigration-related issues extends all the way up to the north, where Martha is in Wisconsin. Um, and so, uh, yeah, check that out. It's a really good practical sort of Hey, here's here are some ways that, that it's important for us to support patients who are struggling with these issues. Hey, Neftali, I'm really glad you shared that, and it just gives me an opportunity at this kind of end of your reflection to say that, that this kind of presentation is what I so love about CFHA. I really have so appreciated your enlightened leadership and guidance in shepherding this organization with a clear, focused eyes set on issues of um, cultural and linguistic aspects of care, the way that we build bridges between um, uh, practitioners and patients over, you know, those sort of cultural and spiritual and religious and race, ethnicity, gender, sexual, all of those um, potential um, barriers to access. So um, please just, uh, you know, accept this, uh, these words of, of deep appreciation. Your, your shepherding of these issues are, are extraordinary. Here, here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I got a, a teacup raise from Grace on that one <laughs> with her here, here. That's that's great. No, thank you, Jeffrey. And, you know, it's interesting because it's it to me, it's fairly second nature. I haven't told my story, I guess, here too much, but um, and I'm not going to belabor it. We have to get onto our podcast here. But um, I am a uh, child of immigrants and um uh, and experienced the healthcare system um, in a unique way, and experienced uh, acculturation in a unique way. Uh, growing up in New York City, getting my healthcare initially through emergency departments, because uh, my parents were were uninsured for for much of my early upbringing. And um, the, you know, as as with many things in life, uh, those things that are challenges for your family, and there were more challenges for my parents and for me as a kid. I you know, thought that was just the way things were. Uh, you know, it's been a blessing in my life because it helps me to understand the the depth 
of the issues that our patients face who are uh, from other cultures um, or even from other regions. You know, I found myself especially recently having more empathy, even beyond just cultural diversity, but regional diversity and thinking about folks in rural areas and how they are different than folks like me who are urban folks um, who have a different mindset and different resources and different access issues. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, I think a lot of what hopefully folks have seen out of CFHA in 2018 and 2017 when I started uh, is just simply a reflection of who I am. I mean, it, it, it's uh, a genuine attempt to um, bridge the gap for all people, um, and particularly the most vulnerable uh, among us who need, uh, need us in the healthcare world to bridge that gap. Um, and that's what gets me excited every day to work on integrated care and work with our members because our members are daily bridging that gap um, uh, whether you're a physician, um, uh, providing culturally competent, patient-centered, family-centered care, whether you are a behavioral health professional working on, alongside that physician and their care team, whether you're a care uh, coordinator or a care manager calling patients up on the phone and tracking them on a database or psychiatrists providing, you know, support that you that, that folks would not otherwise be getting. You know, there's all sorts of iterations of ways in which uh, we bridge th those gaps. Um, and because I know, as someone who's done this myself for many years, um, the impact that that can have on people's real lives, you know, what Deepu is doing right now is having a real impact um, in an individual's life and their family's life, you know, because what he's doing is extending potentially to that person's children, uh, to their uh, spouses, et cetera. Um, uh, and even I would say to the healthcare team that because of Deepu and his team's presence there, the, the the weight of that patient is not felt solely on the on the medical team, on the nurses, on the physicians, et cetera. So uh, that's where that comes from. You know, it's just a, a very natural sense that no, um, we've got to be talking about issues of immigration that affects our patients, and and it affects. Um, uh, our, our our healthcare providers as well. So anyway, long long uh, sort of response, Jeffrey. But thank you for the thank you for the kind words. Yeah, my heart goes out to your parents in those days about what it means to. I mean, on that one hand, know that there is healthcare available in the ER, but to to have to you know kind of depend on that or worry about that and worry about one's kids and their wellness and not always sort of have the consistency of a, of a real doc. So yeah. anyway, thanks for yeah. telling that story. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Um, uh, uh, the, the only other thing I'll say about that is as a kid, like I said, you know, kids, you don't know what's going on. You know, you just go wherever your parents go and you think that's normal. But I, I actually loved going to the emergency department other than the long wait because we would like spend eight hours there literally. Um, but like I thought, well, that's what people do. You just go for eight hours when you're sick. Um, but, but we'd always get hot dogs. There's a you know, New York hot dogs are great. I mean, Sabre hot dogs, still fantastic with the onions. Ah, really mm -hmm. good. And that's what I'd get. I'd get Sabre hot dogs on when I go to the emergency department. <laughs> it also makes me feel like maybe as a little kid, someday some seeds were planted that someday you might even fall in love with an emergency room physician or something. <laughs> <I could. laughs> 
nice connection there. Very good. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. As life as life has it, I I couldn't have married someone more different than myself. A Midwesterner, <laughs> uh, blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, uh, emergency physician. So, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, speaking of rural health, uh, may I share a news item? Um, yes. So, that. thank you, Jeffrey, for getting us back on track. Let's go to news and notes. Jeffrey, start us off. All right. Um, this is just a little bit of background. I, I do some really beautiful work at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. I've been um, working with their uh, faculty there um, for a number of years in um, medical education, really developing their ability to be better teachers globally and be better teachers of culturally responsive care, more specifically with their medical students and residents. And one of my, um, my fellows, uh, Dr. Marissa Ladinsky, She's a pediatrician and part of this incredible team of um, physicians and healthcare practitioners down there. Um, she pointed my attention to uh, an article and a video in which she was um, actually quoted. Um, this is on Vice News, and I'll add it to the show notes. This is an aspect of rural health that um, is um, linked, I would say, to environmental justice. It's the hookworm problem through the Black Belt um, area of Alabama in the South, um, where poverty is abhorrent and pervasive and pernicious. And um, part of the reality of poverty, say in Lowndes um, County, um, is that there is um, just sort of no sewer system, really, um, because of poverty, um, just the the sewage comes up in people's backyards and in just like it's everywhere. Um, so that in itself is a, you know, a, a terrible way that no human should live. In fact, um, visitors from the United Nations who have toured that area have said that what they are seeing there is something they have never seen in a first world country. And that is much more typical for third world uh, poverty. Well, anyway, as if that isn't bad enough, there's a parasite called the hookworm, which lives in the sewage and gets into people's bodies. I'm not going to give you all the horrific details of how the hookworm finds its way, but it gets into the vascular system and the airway and the esophagus and finally into one's digestive system and um, you know, has all kinds of impacts, including cognitive and learning impacts on children. So I guess I just wanted to share this reminder about um, rural health challenges. And the, 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 the role, again, of healthcare practitioners in taking these on and finding solutions. We, behavioral health folks and integrated care folks, um, are, are a very thoughtful and smart group. But have we sufficiently been putting our attentions Beyond the, the care that we're providing in excellent ways in clinical settings, can we step back and really do some thinking and some problem solving and some advocacy and some political activation around that which brings so many to clinics around our nation, like in um, uh, uh, Loudoun County? So um, anyway, that, I, I know it's not a, a, an easy topic. I know it's not a happy topic in these days of holidays. But I think 
um, for me, this is a really essential role for all of us. I would invite us, right, to think and think again, what are we doing in terms of prevention, prevention education, and then stepping back community health and uh, environmental justice. So um, I, I invite all of you to take a look at the, the video. It's extraordinarily beautifully done. Uh, read the uh, accompanying article through, um, through uh, Vice News. Yeah, great, uh, great uh, reminder there. And, you know, the rural issue in particular um, is, I, I think that's going to be a theme going forward in 2019. And just one, one example of, of an attempt that uh, actually CFHA were, were involved in. There's a, uh, I'm in North Carolina, and I'm working with a, uh, a group here in North Carolina, actually the Rural Office of Rural Health, on a project to help migrant farm workers uh, receive better access to mental health care. As you know, there's very poor access in a lot of these rural, very rural areas of places like Western North Carolina. And so uh, we're just trying something. We don't know if it's gonna work, but we're uh, putting um, uh, iPads in the hands of uh, outreach workers uh, who go out to the camps and then piping through uh, counselors uh, through those iPads to work with the migrant farm workers right where they are and provide support uh, in combination with some of the primary care that they receive from um, these migrant farm worker clinics that are um, near the camp. So, yeah, we've got to be creative. It is a call to be creative, and it is a call to be intentional and mindful uh, about thinking about our neighbors, uh, uh, especially when they're not in these urban centers where it's a lot easier to um, to, to sometimes arrange these projects. So thanks for the reminder, Jeffrey. All right, I have a news item as well. I'll make it quick here so we can get to the meat of our podcast today. By the way, I never introduced our podcast topic today. It's going to be a great podcast topic, and it's just really the, our theme. We're going to just kind of talk about what's been the theme for our work in integrated care this year. Um, I've already heard from Grace. I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say about her piece because I resonated so much with it. But before that, um, I want to talk to you about a report that came out. It's not a published report yet. Um, it's out of the University of Michigan Center uh, for Behavioral Health uh, Workforce Research. And it just came through over email, passed along uh, by some folks. It turns out that the study was actually done by some folks nearby right here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I didn't know that when I when I read the report, but it's an interesting report because it gives um, some reporting on the co-location of behavioral health professionals and primary care providers. So what they did basically was take uh, NPI numbers, which are just identification numbers that anybody who bills CMS has, and then they used some geo mapping to map these folks and figure out where they were. Um, and whether they were at the same addresses, for example. So note that one limitation right off the bat from the report is that it's just looking at co-location, and we know that co-location does not equal integration, right? Um, but it still is interesting and helpful because this really is the only information we have relative to the extent of integrated care across the United States. We don't really have anything else, no other estimates of how often this is occurring. So. Essentially what they found was that there's about 44% co-location 
between behavioral health and primary care providers. Again, this is just purely spatially. And that's up 4% um, from the last report, which I believe was in the early 2010s or so. Um, of those who were co-located with physicians, 28% were social workers. In fact, the majority, 70% of their entire sample were social workers, big representation there. And back to our theme of rurality and urban, um, not surprisingly, they found that um, urban practices were spatially co-located more often than rural practices, and larger practices were often more spatially co-located than smaller practices. So what does this tell us? Well, in some ways, it doesn't tell us a whole lot. It leaves out, for example, LMFTs and other folks, LPCs and other folks who are doing a lot of work in this area, but who don't have MPIs because they're not billing CMS necessarily, right? Because they cannot. Um, it also leaves out PAs and NPs and other uh, on the medical side as well because of the same limitation. And it, again, it doesn't tell us much about the integration, but it does give us a baseline. It gives us some understanding of where we are, and it gives us at least some hope. Hey, these folks are actually physically co-located, and if you have 44% of the workforce physically co-located, you'd think that you'd have some capacity to really make a dent if you're able to actually integrate those folks. So I thought that was at least interesting to mention. So that's my news and note. Yeah, co-location is tough. Um, it's, uh, it's about are there enough people and is there enough space? And those are both obviously linked to, to resources um, in so many ways. But um, So not surprising, right? Um, more urban places, uh, larger uh, institutions. And yet, you know, there, there are people in the rural areas with small clinics that also really have needs that yep. we're not yet addressing. Yep. Maybe your iPads and the tele approach can also be helpful, actually, connecting to what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. At some point, I got to get a good friend of mine out in the West Coast. I'm not going to say his name or give his project away because he's where he's in the midst of working on it right now. But he's he's literally working on this this issue of bringing uh, more behavioral health support to rural areas using technology that um, that patients can readily use on their smartphones. So I think there's some creativity out there um, and I'm excited to see what the next few years has to really meet this need. So uh, let's move on to our main sort of podcast focus today. And Grace, we'll start with you. Um, you know, it's the end of the year. We tend to reflect back. And so I asked our podcasters just to reflect and say, what was the theme for integrated care for you in 2018? And Grace, you had one that um, as a formal behavioral health director myself, I could definitely resonate with. Yes. So as I was reflecting back on 2018, I can't help but think about a lot of really big things that have happened for our team. Um, I shared on the podcast when our program director of the residency died in March. Uh, and then I don't know if I've mentioned that since then, well, I should say that we're a small program. We have 15 residents total. And typically there's four physician faculty and myself that make up the core faculty of the residency. And the way that the program has always operated traditionally has been very centrally focused on the core faculty with just, you know, some minor use of adjunctive faculty. But since our program director died in March, we've also had our former associate program director 
stepped into the program director role. And that, as you can imagine, is a kind of trial by fire, really becoming immersed in all of the administrative tasks and roles that come along with that. But then also another of our faculty um, was deployed. He's in the Army Reserves, and he was deployed for three months. And another of our faculty had a significant back surgery that took him out for a month. And then our the only one that's left is the new one that we hired. And, you know, she's new. She was practicing in rural practice for the, over a decade. And it's a transition to move into academic medicine. So we've had all of that going on with our faculty. And then at the same time, I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, in September, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, advanced metastatic. And that has really shaken our family and me personally. And so as I look back over 2018, the things that I had aspired to do with our program and and the clinical work that we've done have been overshadowed by all of the just life circumstances that have happened. So I would sum it up as adaptability, um, having to really just move forward regardless of what kind of unexpected major changes have come up. And then having a lot of grace and patience with ourselves and our team, because, you know, I was like, okay, this is the year I'm going to start working more on publications. Nope, that doesn't happen. This is the year I'm going to formalize my curriculum for my BHC students, because I've worked hard the last four years on formalizing my curriculum for the residents. Now let me turn to these other beginning clinicians that I'm mentoring and think about them. No, that has fizzled uh, in its in its development. And so many of the goals that I had have not come to fruition. At the same time, there have been other opportunities that have arisen that I've been able to take advantage of, um, like the new Oklahoma laws about opioid prescribing, which I think I did mention a little bit on here. Um, I've been tasked with helping uh, kind of becoming a consultant for our system of thinking about changing the way that we think about and treat chronic pain using more of a chronic illness model and a self-management model, um, which we've been doing in the residency for several years. And then when I went to this meeting to tell them what we've been doing, they were like, oh, you've been doing that here? We have a solution right here within our own system. So I've been able to join those conversations and advocate for treating patients um, in a way that I believe is more appropriate for what they have, you know, the problem they're presenting with. And then Integris is also expanding their integrated care offerings. And so I don't really have an interest in moving into like director of integrated care for the system, but I can, you know, contribute the knowledge and experience that I do have in supporting and encouraging those beginning team members as they're getting that off of the ground. So there have been opportunities that I didn't expect that have come up that I've been able to connect and collaborate and communicate. And then the things that I had in mind that I wanted to do have not come about. And it's been, um, just like I said, a lot of grace for myself and for our team, given the uh, enormity of what's happening, because really some really life-changing um, life shattering in a way kind of things have occurred. So that that's the way I would sum up my 2018. It wasn't all that I would have expected, you know, January 1st of last year. Uh, but it's been a year that I've just really been trying to engage with wholeheartedly and to, to in, the, in the Brene Brown sense of the word uh, and to, uh, to be present and connected with the people 
um, here on our team and here in my family and in my personal life. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, there's so much to to resonate with that. And I think I think listeners out there, uh, as I said before, when you uh, gave us a thumbnail of this, it's like, you know, that sense of, of uh, when you're building a program and you have these ideals and these goals, and then you meet with the challenges, challenges of life. Uh, and, you know, I, I talk with lots of directors and I, I think a lot of them are surprised when I talk to them about their life because I say, you know, what happens in your life is not completely separate from what's gonna happen in your program and the bandwidth that you're gonna need to make this thing go has to do with what's going on in your life too. And so attending to that is important. Um, and then the systems life, right? The systems that you work in um, and what happens there is unpredictable as well. So that theme of adaptability, and I think for you, Grace, I'm hearing just that, you didn't want to use it because it sounded too cliche, but yeah, that grace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is the theme, right? And it's, you have to be able to roll with life, work with what life gives you, trust life. Um, and, and then uh, practice that sense of gratefulness for the opportunities that you do have while you work through the really, really difficult parts. So yeah, I think I think there's lots of folks out there who can resonate with that uh, that that journey. And I would say, Grace, you know, you ended your comments with uh, your working on presence and connection. And, and I have to say, like, I feel that with you in this moment, like the generosity of your sharing makes me feel connected to you and your presence and presence of mind and clarity of articulating what it is that you're living through and have you know, been sort of shepherding, you know, with your uh, residents and colleagues and, and your mom and your family. So anyway, just this is a gift. Thank you for for um, for, for telling us about, about your journey these last months. Well, thank you for hearing it. Yeah, and uh, there is a beauty in the midst of the, the struggle that I think um, we're able to see through your words. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, that I think you said before. I hope this is not too depressing, but it's not. It's not depressing at all <laughs> yes. because there's that beauty that you see. And you know what? This is actually encouraging because um, there's a lot of folks out there. I talk to folks all the time who are really struggling with their programs, struggling in leadership, um, struggling to figure out a way, both personally and professionally. And to hear that sort of centeredness in the midst of that, that you know, you are working towards. Uh, yeah, it's inspiring. I think it's easy as a leader um, in a leadership role to really feel like you have to have it all together and to, to come in, you know, the captain of the ship and steering things and um, being in control of yourself, if nothing else, and in charge. But there have been many times that I have just had to apologize to my team and say, I'm sorry, I'm here with you, I'm doing whatever I can. Um, and then at the same time, on the flip side, there have been times when I answered a phone call from my behavioral health interns with a, you know, patient safety emergency while I was in the oncologist's office with my mom. And so it's just a constant, I don't, I, sometimes I struggle with the word balance because I don't mm -hmm. think that it's something really stable that we achieve, but there's a dynamic balance that happens of 
and that's where that presence comes for me, like trying to attend to what I can in the moment and what's in front of me and let go of what I can't. That's what I would encourage our, our um, listeners on, you know, those are struggle- who are struggling or who are hurting, that the, the authenticity that can come with pain is a type of leadership in itself, um, even when it's not the wisdom of having all the answers in the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, Jeffrey, to send us off here in a little bit, will uh, take us through a little bit of a uh, centering exercise to help us ground in the in the present. Um, wiser words could not have been spoken, Grace. Um, it is absolutely uh, crucial for authentic, um, enabling leadership for people to be real, essentially. Um, I, I just actually watched a uh, replay of the uh, of an interview with uh, Michelle Obama yesterday on Jimmy Fallon on uh, the Tonight Show, I think. And uh, it was interesting to me that, um, you know, he, he just made a comment about her that, hey, you know, you just you just seem to connect so well with people and you've done all these great things. And, um, you know, what what she said was so um, insightful and real in the moment where she said, basically, you know, who you see back there and who you see in my family, who you see here, who you see when I'm working, who you see when I'm. Um, championing causes is one person. It's the same person each time. And when you're able to ground yourself that way, yeah, it makes a huge difference as a leader. You, people follow authenticity. And so, and that's not something that can be manufactured. That's something you get through life and often through some of the more difficult parts of our lives. So thank you again, Grace, for, for sharing. Jeffrey, um, what's your theme for 2018? So I um, continue to be very much worried about and swimming in the waters of trying to understand and undo racism. Um, I, I heard um, Dr. Kamara Jones, family physician, speak a couple of years ago, um, a beautiful writer. If you haven't read The Garden, Gardener's Tale, um, uh, her, her work is extraordinary in helping us understand racism and its poison. Um, and I, I left her talk, and she, she was the past president of the American Public Health Association as well. I left her talk thinking that whatever it is that I'm doing to dismantle racism is far from enough. Mm-hmm. So um, with that frame, uh, just uh, in the last few weeks, the, um, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine has published a new position paper. I like the idea of a position paper. It's like a... a flag in the, in the dirt that helps us understand where we are and maybe gives us a roadmap to where we're going. This position paper, I mean, the Journal of Adolescent Health, um, entitled Racism and Its Harmful Effects on uh, Non-Dominant Racial Ethnic Youth and Youth Serving Providers, a Call to Action for Organizational Change. Uh, I, I love this paper. Um, it's extraordinary. It is shining a very bright light on the global wave of racism and its impact on on youth, their self-concept, their health, their well-being, their life trajectories. And it asks us, each of us who reads it, each of us as healthcare practitioners, well, what is your role in this? Is this on your radar? And what are you doing to um, intervene in a way that makes a difference? Um, I I won't go through all all of the pieces of this, although I'll invite people to spend some time with it, but for example, 
they remind us that organizations should develop, implement, and value training providers to routinely explore and address racism with all youth and effectively intervene when they identify those affected. Like, are we doing that? Is that part of our curriculum? Are we mm -hmm. talking about this? Do practitioners know? Are we, you know, it's such a difficult conversation in general in our country, but, but it, are these conversations happening amongst um, faculty, faculty and learners, practitioners and patients? And if so, how? And if not, why not? And what are the barriers? So anyway, I, I think um, uh, uh, Neftali, in response to you know, what I really um, hope to uh, feel like I've been thinking about last year and, and continue to want to think and act on um, in the year ahead is really all about this. Um, and it's linked to, um, to integrating behavioral health care. It's linked to rural health care. It's linked to telemedicine. It's linked to self-reflection in how we navigate our own biases and stereotypes and comfort zones and communication styles and um, how those uh, unfold differentially with different people. And then if we think specifically about, about youth, right, and that, with that full array of adolescent possibility, can't we do a better job there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for those of you that are listening that, that didn't get the early reference to the speaker, we had a speaker at, at our conference this year uh, talk about this issue very, very powerfully. Um, and, and, you know, I think it really reverberated uh, among the, the, you know, 650 folks there present that, yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not doing enough to address the impacts of race um, and the very direct impacts impacts on on uh, health disparities that result as a part of that, and uh, we've got to be part of the solution. And there are various ways in which we have to be part of the solution, including what you're talking about, Jeffrey, which is just having these conversations with folks and making it a little bit more explicit. Um, you know what's going on um, in people's lives and how they're experiencing uh, the world. And it's more and more appropriate today, given the context, right? I mean, it, 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 it's just a strange world, it feels like, that we live in today, where, where these, uh, these issues of race and culture um, are both out in front of us more and both harder to talk about somehow or harder to address, particularly in certain contexts. Um, I don't. I don't think I remember ever remember a time in my life where there's just that much everywhere. Um, just speaking of young people and race, uh, just a few blocks from where I live at the campus of the U University of North Carolina, there is tremendous controversy over what to do with a Confederate statue that was recently toppled by students, by young people on the campus, um, because they felt that it could no longer stand as a symbol of of oppression um, and yet there's other folks who uh, feel like feel very differently about it and feel like it's a symbol of culture and a symbol of their sort of a representation of of their heroes so that's the world we live in and it's interesting because as much as we you know i don't know that we actively try not to be political but we certainly don't this is not a political podcast but isn't it interesting, guys, that throughout the, this year and our conversations, 
um, how the political, including racial issues of race, um, ethnicity, and health disparity, how often those have come into our conversations as healthcare providers, right? I mean, I, I just think that's interesting. Well, health is political. It's linked to policy. It's linked to priorities. It's linked to funding. It's linked to platforms. Um, all of these things, as we've seen in the last history here of our country, right? Uh, but particularly in the last years, these um, these decisions make a difference. The Affordable Care Act makes a difference. Ending the Affordable Care Act makes a difference. So, um, so yes, finding a voice and a voice for advocacy is, um, I think, an important part of our role. At least that's how I feel mm -hmm. about myself. I, I just wanted to say really quickly, linked to that position paper, uh, just a quick shout out if I can. A lot of people worked on that. Um, on that project, um, but I have at least four peeps who I really wanted to celebrate in that work. One is um, Dr. Um, Maria Veronica Sveta. She's up in um, Minneapolis. Um, uh, Dr. Vinny uh, Chulani, a pediatrician in uh, Phoenix. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Tamara Coyne-Beasley, she's at University of Alabama um, School of Medicine. And uh, uh, Dr. Lisa Barkley, she's here in Los Angeles. She's the director of a brand new sparkling family medicine residency program um, in South Central uh, LA. So anyway, um, these and many others, I think, will be the, the, the heroes that we, and the champions that we can walk shoulder to shoulder with in the year ahead. Cool, cool. All right, well, I'll give our, uh, the final reflection here uh, before we close our podcast today. Um, I was trying to think about what one of the themes was of, of 2018. Um, and for me, the thing that propped up uh, was MAT. Um, Medication-assisted treatment has um, really just been something that I've seen a lot of our members uh, working on, struggling with, having success with. Um, and I think a couple of things I would say about it. Um, one is I'm heartened by it, not because MAT is sort of the answer to all of uh, the issues around substance abuse in our communities, particularly rural communities, but because it's the beginning of a conversation. And I'm seeing the conversation develop and evolve in positive ways. I think more and more we're having real conversations about the issues that our patients are facing and how we need to deal with them. Kind of like what you were talking about, Grace, before about your the approach that you and your center are taking to substance abuse and chronic pain and chronic um, and managing, looking at it as a chronic illness model, um, you know, I'm seeing those conversations develop in substantive ways. So there's definitely been progress with uh, increased acceptability of the idea of MAT, and uh, many more folks are implementing MAT services at their clinics um, than ever before. My wife herself in the emergency department is uh, just got trained this year um, in uh, the prescribing of Suboxone um, relative to the emergency department. And they, they're starting actually a new initiative as well where they're providing support from a consulting psychiatrist for folks uh, to get started on um, medication-assisted treatment um, and get connected to MAT providers in the community. So there's stuff going on all over the place that really heartens me. And it's really a, a good beginning of the conversation. Um, to these issues. And some of the conversation does revolve around, has revolved around the limitations of MAT um, and some of the boundary issues around MAT. So at, at our conference, for example, had some great conversations with folks 
who are really struggling with knowing what to do with patients who are struggling with um, uh, their uh, their MAT work. Um, you know, what do you do when when uh, tox screens come back uh, positive? Um, what do you do when you're when you're suspicious of diversion? What do you do when folks who are under the influence of substances um, create problems in your waiting room? Um, these are real questions that uh, people are are working on and answering. But what again, what encourages me is that people are working on it. I think for far too long, uh, folks struggling with substance abuse issues have been sort of cordoned off in society, shunted to substance abuse treatment centers where uh, oftentimes, too often, uh, receiving ineffective care or too late care. Um, and at least there's a, there's, a, there's a general conversation in the healthcare community about our responsibility to meet the needs of folks with substance abuse issues. And I'm happy as long as we're talking about that conversation as our responsibility and as we're taking steps that uh, practically can very well save lives. So um, the other piece that I'll end with here is just that MAT has really put a highlight on integrated care in general um, in an interesting way, I think, because I think we, we were making the argument through much of the 2000s, hey, integrated care is essential for depression. And then we started saying, well, but you know, integrated care is also essential for behavioral health issues like diabetes and diabetes self-management, for example, right? These key expensive chronic conditions. But I think nothing has probably highlighted the need for integrated care more than the opioid crisis. Um, it, it's almost as if it's so obvious that you need a team to work uh, around patients and their families on these issues that it's just sort of highlighted the need, well, you've got to have providers that understand how to work in teams. You just can't have it any other way. And, and in that way, again, a, an interesting and helpful side effect that I've seen in, in 2018, where it's just like so obvious, we need integrated care teams. And in that context, that's the context in which services like MAT services are best delivered. So that, that's my theme for, for uh, 2018. All right. Well, we have come to the end of another uh, podcast and the end of a year. So I want to end the year with a little bit of gratitude for my podcast partners. Uh, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the effort you put in. I mean, you guys are not getting paid to do this. You show up, you give insightful commentary, you give up yourselves personally to this and you're passionate about the work you do that comes across I think to our listeners certainly to me so uh, thank you thank you so much for just being a part of this and I look forward to another great year in 2019 me too thank you Natalie mm -hmm. well it is our uh, tradition and I don't know how this tradition started but um, some it started at some point like most traditions just sort of organically to end the podcast with a little bit of a brief meditation or centering idea or thought to help our listeners sort of work through their professional lives. So uh, today, Jeffrey's going to take us through. Um, and while you're here, Jeffrey, you're, you'll be hearing one of the sort of mindfulness skills that we employ with patients in our integrated care settings often as we help patients ground themselves who are struggling with anxiety or depression or things like that. Um, so uh, you'll, you'll get a taste of it for yourself, but also sort of a live 
example of some of the skill set that we bring to the table to our team. So, Jeffrey, uh, take it away. Thank you. I, I invite you to, um, if you're sitting, just to notice the support of the chair at your back and uh, your hips and thighs. If you're standing, maybe you can lean against a wall that provides support to your spine. If you're laying down, all good, let gravity pull you down. If you're not driving, I invite you to close your eyes for the moment, or maybe just look downward. I invite you just for a moment to notice your breath. Breath, right? A very sort of important friend from our first moment to our last. A faithful companion. But can we look at our breath with some fresh eyes? What do you notice about your your breath in this moment? Can you study your breath with a curiosity rarely brought to the next yet to be breathed breath? What do you notice? What parts of your body move and contribute to a breath cycle? Maybe your neck and throat, perhaps your back and shoulders, likely your chest, maybe your belly. And what do you notice? Are you breathing through your nose or your mouth or both? What do you notice? Are you uh, are your inhales longer than or about the same or sh shorter than your exhales? What do you notice? This one's very esoteric. If you're breathing through your nose, can you notice whether you're breathing more through your right nostril or your left nostril or or both equal? And finally, is there any kind of experience of peace in this mindful reflection? Does your body achieve a kind of peace and melting from being supported by chair or wall or bed or floor. Does your mind achieve a kind of sweet and delicious peace from just following your breath? Each breath is a gift. It is new and about to reveal itself, never having been revealed before. My wish for you in 2019 is peace and breath and curiosity. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Natal. I don't know how you do that, Jeffrey. <laughs>
thanks for the warning for the drivers out there because I <laughs> that was very very centering thank you so much Jeffrey uh, thank you all to our listeners we really appreciate having you as our listeners uh, any feedback you can send to us at info at cfha.net uh, find us on the web at cfha.net our main website but also our podcast is located at integratedcarenews.com we're happy to have interaction with you and we're happy to have you as our listeners join us for a fresh set of podcasts in 2019 lots of fun uh, on behalf of Jeffrey, Grace, Amber, and Deepu, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you in 2019.